Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Good morning and uh, welcome to Tall Rounds this morning. Uh, the topic of discussion in imaging chest pain, uh, the new guidelines in a new era. Uh, over the past uh, two years, there have been two uh, new chest pain guidelines. The ESC uh, came out with their guidelines in 2020 and the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association came out with their guidelines last fall. Uh, I think you will see from the uh, presentation here, we have a packed one hour uh, that these guidelines uh, mostly are actually practice affirming for us rather than practice changing for uh, our uh, center. Uh, we have uh, a nice group of individuals all involved in treating these patients. Uh, we'll start as usual with a case, uh, uh, Dr. Gary Pariser, uh, one of our uh, fellows, uh, future imager, uh, he's going to present a case, and then uh, we will discuss it after that and highlight some of the uh, 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 issues with the case. Hi, thank you, Dr. Jaber, for the introduction. I'm Gary Pariser. I'm one of the general cardiology uh, fellows. Um, I want to start our presentation with a patient presenting to the ER. This is a very common location for us to encounter chest pain. Um, we meet a woman in her 70s presenting with a syndrome of epigastric discomfort that began about two weeks prior. She describes the gradual onset of epigastric pressure radiating to the left shoulder. Sometimes this is accompanied by belching. Sometimes this is accompanied, uh, this is provoked with exertion, such as with working in her yard. Sometimes she can work in her yard without any difficulty and no symptoms. Sometimes she experiences the syndrome at rest and it resolves spontaneously. Um, her symptoms seem to worsen one to two days prior to presentation, which prompted her to come to the ER. Her comorbidities include asthma, she takes inhalers, she is obese with a BMI of 33, she has obstructive sleep apnea for which she uses CPAP and she reports adherence to her CPAP. She is hypertensive, a recent clinic visit demonstrated a blood pressure of 150 over 67, she's not on any antihypertensives, and she is pre-diabetic with a hemoglobin A1C of 6.2%. Her physical exam in the ER is notable for hypertension. She's a febrile. She's breathing comfortably and saturating well on room air. Her physical exam demonstrates regular rate and rhythm with no murmurs, gallops, rubs. There's no evidence of decompensated heart failure on examination. Her lungs are clear. Her neck veins are flat. There's no edema. And her abdominal exam is benign. This is her electrocardiogram uh, demonstrating normal sinus rhythm without any concerning acute or chronic ischemic changes. This is her lab work. Her CBC is relatively benign, and her metabolic panel is also pretty unremarkable. She does have an abnormal high-sensitivity troponin that trends down at the one and three-hour mark, 56, 52, and 50. And she has an abnormal lipid panel with an LDL cholesterol of 105. Her A1C confirmed at 6.2%. Chest radiography is shown here, demonstrating no acute cardiopulmonary abnormality. So in light of her pretest probability and her presentation, which features some components that are very typical of um, cardiac pain and some components that are atypical, we elect to proceed with further risk stratification. She gets a resting transthoracic echocardiogram that demonstrates normal chamber size and function without any concerning valvular pericardial or great vessel abnormalities. And she gets an exercise treadmill spec'd. The top row are static images, stress on the top, rest on the bottom. They demonstrate a small resting perfusion defect 
at the basal inferior wall and a reversible perfusion defect of moderate intensity in the infralateral wall extending from apex to base. At the bottom, there are gated images which demonstrate a reversible defect in brightening, suggesting that there is some ischemic stunning in the infralateral wall with stress. She undergoes a coronary angiogram, and you can see here on the image on the left-hand side that there is a severe stenosis in a large first obtuse marginal branch of the left circumflex artery. In addition, there is stenosis in the right coronary artery. At this point, we feel pretty confident that her syndrome is explained by a coronary problem. So she undergoes percutaneous intervention. She has a stent to the RCA demonstrated on the right side, and she has a stent to that OM1 branch demonstrated on the left side. And at follow-up, she's doing well from a cardiovascular standpoint. Thank you. Thank you, Venno. This is uh, fantastic. And actually, this is important to, uh, when you showed the 60% 60, 60 of patients can be ruled out. And those are the patients, actually, the guidelines focused on uh, to allow the emergency department physicians to uh, defer management and have these patients evaluated uh, later and so forth. And with that, uh, de uh, decompress the emergency department. So my task this morning is to uh, review some of the uh, historical roles of myocardial perfusion imaging uh, with nuclear uh, tracers and uh, convince you that it's still relevant in 2022. So with, uh, with chest pain, I think one of the important things uh, to remember is this is an application of the theory of optimal surge. And this is uh, how we, uh, we uh, at least the US military thought about it during World War II. Uh, they were having all their boats uh, sunk by uh, German U-boats. Uh, and then they got these mathematicians from uh, uh, Princeton uh, who worked on this, uh, on this uh, problem. And it works on this problem in actually a two-by-two two two model. So the model was, uh, what's the likelihood of the ship being there or the U-boat being there? And the second one, what tool do we have to detect that ship or that U-boat? So you can place people on the shore of France and they're looking out into the ocean, and that's one method of looking for U-boats. You can send small uh, boats, small uh, fishing boats to the ocean, and they look for these U-boats when they surface for air. Or you can send uh, ships with sonar. So depending on the sensitivity and specificity of the method you use to detect these U-boats, we actually can focus on the areas where the U-boats are more likely to be, and therefore you can uh, take care of them. And this is represented in this table right here. And this is actually how we think of chest pain. We should be thinking about chest pain in patients presenting to the ER. Dr. Menon showed some of the pretest probability of disease for that. And then what method and what test you're gonna use to detect that? So high sensitivity troponin actually we're fortunate to have that because it's just an elegant and simple tool to eliminate most of the areas that say in the ocean where these U-boats can be. And now you can focus your technology on uh, on detecting uh, these U-boats in areas where they're more likely to be. So this is what I call uninformed or partially informed revascularization. This is the most uh, probably cited uh, trials in ischemic heart disease, Courage, Barry 2, uh, FAME 2, and ischemia recently, showing no difference in, uh, in outcomes between uh, revascularization optimal medical therapy uh, in all comers. Now, of course, you all know that most of these trials had at least an arm that involved functional testing, but unfortunately, these arms were not equal, so the methods used to assess ischemia were different, even within individual trials. So you can have, let's say, ischemia where most of the patients had an EKG stress test uh, without imaging, 
similarly encouraged only few of the patients, not many patients, had ischemia evaluation with uh, SPECT and stress echo. Uh, and of course, uh, you can have that invasively as in FAME uh, 2. Now, there is also uh, the concept of interaction between the test you use, you select, whether it's exercise or pharmacological stress testing, the phenotype of the patient presenting for stress testing based on age, diabetes, and gender, and the amount of ischemia and the risk you derive from that test. And you can see here, these tests, at least myocardial perfusion imaging, performs well in almost all these groups. And of course, it performs best when you use exercise stress testing in patients who are diabetic. Now, this is probably the most famous slide. This is from our colleague, Rory Hakamovich, showing the interaction between the degree of ischemia and the benefit you derive from revascularization or the modest uh, benefit you can derive from medical therapy at uh, low ischemic thresholds, but the superiority of revascularization at higher ischemic thresholds. Now, you can say this data that Rory at least presented was representative of a population in the late 90s, early 2000s, but this work was actually recently replicated in this large uh, data set of over 16,000 patients from uh, the Kansas group using PET uh, in the modern era uh, to assess the interaction between amount of ischemia and revascularization versus medical therapy, showing patients when they have a large amount of ischemia, there is a progressive improvement in the hazard ratio from revascularization versus medical therapy alone. And finally, from our group, this is a study that published uh, last year, uh, led by Paul Kramer, uh, looking at the uh, implementation of myocardial perfusion imaging algorithm to inform the uh, downstream testing and revascularization and treatment. And you can see here, this is a cohort from our center here of over 12,000 patients. And these are the patients as assessed by low, intermediate, as high, and high risk, as you can see from all our reports generated from the nuclear lab. And you can see that uh, this risk score actually played a central role as a gatekeeper away, to keep patients away from angiography, where patients who assessed as low risk, only 2% of those patients end up with angiography. And also, this also informed revascularization in this, in this population. Based on all what I've showed you, these are the guidelines right now, as stated uh, similarly, the European and the US guidelines. The only difference between the US and the European guidelines is in the US guidelines, there was a class 2A indication favoring PET over SPECT when available for assessment of ischemia. So keep that, uh, uh, keep that uh, in mind. And also we favor still here uh, exercise treadmill uh, for, for, for uh, imaging uh, stress testing over pharmacological stress testing to get you some uh, data. So now we uh, finally, I leave you with these, uh, some of these thoughts. Stress testing with imaging is alive and well. We still do a lot of it. Actually, we're doing more than ever here. Risk stratification for mortality based on percent ischemia and METs. It can give you a tailored approach for uh, intracoronary angiography and uh, revascularization. It gives you some reassurance to continue with guideline-directed medical therapy and informs the, own, the patient's own assessment for risk and fitness. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.